This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And I'm looking for my student, Robert, and they're like, he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. And I'm looking for my student and I eventually see him in a tinted cop car. His face kind of like sawed off, you know, like red, like fresh red from being sawed on the sidewalk, like being his face being rubbed on the sidewalk hard. And he's bleeding and he's incoherent. And the minute, you know, I'm like this... Like, it's just, it's like a whirlwind and it moves slow and then a police officer comes and pushes me and I'm like, this is my student. What's going on? This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. Yo, I am amped to introduce y'all to Donnell Cogdell Jr., also known as Reflect. Reflect is a hip-hop artist, speaker, and activist who serves as the National Director of Development for the King Movement and as a Director of Justice for Hope Astoria Church in Queens, New York. He's also a featured artist on our Juneteenth Faith and Freedom soundtrack, which you should definitely check out. You can find out more about Reflect in the show notes or by visiting whereyoufrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, O-R-G. Please join me as I ask Reflect, where you're from? I was born in Wichita, Kansas. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's not a place that I necessarily claim because I don't have any community there, but the stationary place, the home base is New York Wine Dance, Long Island. That's what I knew as home growing up. My parents were hardworking. My father, Master Sergeant in the Air Force, fixed planes, an honorable man, worked hard. My mother, a beautician, honorable woman, worked hard, you know, two hardworking parents. And so I kind of came into the scene while they were trying to build their lives and they used the Air Force to make a living because, you know, we're from poor places and from New York and Cleveland. So that was their ticket out of the hood. And I was born in that space. Got it. Got it. So, like, tell me a little bit about from what you know, why they made the choice to come into the military. Yeah, I've enjoyed just hearing more of my father's story as I grow up you know, and understanding him more now as a man. For him, my father had got accepted to five HBCUs coming out of high school. Mm. You know, he had dreams of being a pilot, but he could not afford it. He could not afford going to those schools at the time. And I don't think financial aid and grants were as established mm. back then as they are now. My father is 64. So this was in the 60s, 70s. And, you know, he did not really have a clear path. And just hearing the different places and the factories that he had to work, opportunities were slim for him. 
You know, he also had a free agent trial with the Giants. <laughs> but by the time things had got tight and he needed to make a decision, he took a bold step and joined the Air Force. And by the time that the Giants called him back, he was already on his way to boot camp. And so as opportunities slammed down and he wasn't able to go to college, the Air Force became the way for him. And then for my mother, raising public housing in Cleveland, raising her three brothers because her father died when she was 11. College was something that she tried to do, but also couldn't afford it. You know, she had went to Kent State for a little bit, but the bills were too much. And so she decided to make that choice into the Air Force. And that's where they met. They met on a base in Texas. And my father shot his shot. <laughs> and uh, not too long after he shot his shot, they got married probably within three months after they met, you know. And wow. Yeah. And then they had me within a year. So they, they didn't waste no time. Mm, mm. I'm curious. So you have these two people trying to make a life for themselves and oftentimes with these obstacles of finances, which both got in their way of preventing them from higher education and the traditional paths that we imagine oftentimes for someone wanting to make a life yeah. for themselves. And in the context of that, they join the military and they have you. Yeah. In the hindsight, like you said, you're reflecting on your life more now and how your upbringing. How do you think that that formed you? Like that backdrop of their military background, mm -hmm. even their almost deferred dreams? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, one, they were hardworking, you know, so <laughs> there was no way out of not working hard. You know, my father ended up becoming a master sergeant in the service. My mother was a manager of a beauty salon. So everywhere they went, they worked hard and they were known, you know, and of course, my mom being a beautician, you know, everybody knew story, you know, how beauty salons are. So everybody knew me walking around. And so they were just really loving people. And, it, you know, for me, I think I came out the gate seeing opportunity and I didn't see my life in one place. You know, some rappers, they identify a block, you know, a street as th that's them and their city. And for me, sometimes I envied that because I lived on so many streets, I can't remember them all. Mm, right. And and so that was kind of like the situation. I found myself in this middle often mm. and had to navigate that. Uh, not always feeling accepted everywhere we went, sometimes being accepted everywhere we went. But, you know, just being able to see that, being able to travel, it does a lot for your psyche. I remember... Years ago, when I ran a program in Queens, shout outs to one of my students, his name is Sherman, and his testimony, yeah, I've been through hard times, but he said, yo, I went to London, so you can never tell me I can't make it out the hood. Just from one school trip, mm. it told him there's opportunity out there. No matter what anybody in my block says, I can get out there. And so for me, I was born and seeing, oh, we can go here, we can go there. Mm -hmm. And I think it just inherently put, like, I'm not afraid to take risks. Mm -hmm. It made me resourceful. It gave me the relationship, navigational skills in different spaces. And I also got to see how all alike we are, you know, traveling mm -hmm. to different places like Japan and different places in America. I saw how alike we are and how different we are. And I just always had to figure out what space we are in. Got it. Got it. So in the context of that, like, where was the place that you spent the most time? Growing up, I would probably say I never lived anywhere 
longer than three or four years. So New Mexico ranks up there. But I lived in places like Idaho, um, Arizona, Colorado, Japan. And then, you know, from there, after I graduated, I, I came back to New York, which was always like home base to me with my grandmother, my cousins. And I, I had a close relationship with my father's family. But probably growing up, New Mexico might have been the place I stayed at the longest. Man, that is really interesting just to see all of those places. And like you said, it sounds like that came with some benefits in terms of your ability to observe and and connect with people from different backgrounds and just see the world bigger. But then it also comes with some disadvantages of not being able to really feel tethered to a place and connected to a place. So what was the um, spiritual environment like at home? You know, I would say by the time I got introduced to church, probably was like around 10 or 11. Before that, it was like once or twice a year. And so I was so not used to church during this time. But there was this respect for the Lord, you know, we would still say grace. And little did I know from what my parents told me when I was born, they were attending church consistently. And then I think life just got busy and they kind of lost their way for a second. But I would say things shifted around 11 years old when my mom made the decision to like go back to church consistently. And she had sent me to summer Bible school and I thought it was lit. Like all these stories about Moses and David and Joseph, these stories were like gold to me, you know? And it was interesting at that time, experiencing church and congregation and fellowship and community, there was just something different about the community. Like there was a genuine love and every now and then you felt like the pastor was really talking to you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it was exciting and surreal walking into this community. And seeing how that kind of shifted my mother, it slowed down her anger towards me, you know, and she actually apologized. Man, I was like, God, must be real. My mother apologized to me, you know? And so I started seeing shifts like that. It was just this love that was needed because at that time, there was some cracks in my family, meaning that my mother and my father were arguing a lot, a lot, a lot. And I felt like if it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for the Lord at that time, I could definitely see my parents getting a divorce. You know, it wasn't going the right way. You know what I mean? And they both love me and mm-hmm. I love them. But only God's love intervening in that situation brought peace. Man, that sounds fascinating because to hear from a son's standpoint, the type of transformation in a mother's mm-hmm. parenting, in a husband and wife's relationship. It's not just like what I'm telling you to do. It's what you're seeing happening in them. So when did your parents' transformation become your own experience with God? Yeah, I I probably would say about 11 or 12. There was a couple of things that happened that were just miracles and some things were just rational that really just showed the case for me. I remember having nightmares and feeling like at night there's something trying to torment me, you know, and voices and things like that. That Sunday I'd asked a deacon, I said, this is what's going on at nighttime and I, I can't sleep. I'm, I'm bothered. I'm scared. And they said, baby, when you feel that, just call on the name of Jesus and he'll come right in. And I remember the next time that night where I was worried and scared and I called the name of Jesus 
and it was probably the most restful, peaceful night I ever had. And so that was one experience. And then at that time I had bad asthma. So I grew up feeling very vulnerable because of my asthma. And the preacher told me that Jesus heals. And I was hearing all these stories about Jesus healing, Jesus healing. And he said, all you have to do is ask and you shall receive. And I never forget, I went home that Sunday. I went into the bathroom and I closed the door, I turned off the light and our little fake candle light was on. And I bowed down before God. I said, the minister said that you can heal me. And all I have to do is ask you. And well, will you heal me in the name of Jesus? And I never forget, I walked out of that bathroom feeling healed, feeling restored. So much so, I threw away all my inhalers. My mother almost had a fit with me. I just threw them away. That's how radical it was. You know, and I played sports. So I played basketball, football, I played all of it. And I knew when my asthma got bad and all of that went away. You know, and I've never, since I was 11, since I threw away those inhalers, I've never needed another pump again in my life. So with those things happening, seeing God work that way, seeing God change my mom. And there was an altar call that the preacher had and I felt like he was talking to me. I was like, Jesus is real. And I walked to that altar call. If you know the <laughs> black church, at the end of the sermon, I walked to the altar call and the sun was just shining differently through the windows that day. I gave my life to Jesus. God will meet you where you're at. Amazing story. Thanks for sharing. And it reminds me of in John chapter 9, when Jesus and the disciples walk by a man that was mm -hmm. born blind. And they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man mm -hmm. or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, mm -hmm. but that the works of God might be displayed mm -hmm. in him. And the thing that always struck me about that is Jesus didn't heal everybody on the face of the earth when he was right. here. Right. It wasn't about a parlor trick or trying to use the miraculous to be the basis of mm -hmm. everyone's faith. Mm -hmm. But on occasion and in different moments, he saw a particular opportunity to say, this is happening so that the works of God might be displayed yeah. in somebody. And it sounds like that was the particular context that happened on that floor in that bathroom at that young age where the Lord was like, yeah. I'm going to do this, that the works of God would be displayed. That's incredible. You know, thanks for sharing that. So once you make this decision, you know, you're still mm -hmm. what middle school. What happens next? Like, is the transformation quick or is it a slower build to what it meant for you with this new perspective? Yeah, I mean, I would say probably about 16 years old. There was a minister that came in high school. He had a revival and I actually got connected to some strong youth ministries and they were discipling me on how to share my faith, how to walk out the disciplines. And so I really, at that time, looked up to people like AC Green in the NBA and Allen Houston. I'm like, yo, I'm going to be like these brothers. I'm going to the league. I'm rapping in the name of Jesus. So it became probably very bold, 16. I'm like, this is this is not something to hold back or hold in. Okay. And you had hoop dreams, so you were balling for yeah. real, Yeah. Huh? My father had me playing with grown men since I was a kid. It's 11, 10, 9 years uh. old. These guys that were young GIs and young airmen, I was playing with them. 
and they always show me love, you know. So my high school career was okay, you know, but then I walked on to a D1. So it was serious, you know, but being in the Air Force, I wasn't able to get into that AAU circuit. You know what I mean? Uh, right. I'm moving, moving around. around all the time. Gotcha. You also mentioned that you started writing raps that reference, you know, yeah. your faith and, and the Lord yeah. as well. So in the spirit of Brown Sugar, <laughs> when did you first fall in love with hip hop? You know what, Russell? Yo, my family always loved music. You know, and we had Earth, Wind & Fire, Sade, Prince, Michael Jackson. We had all that vinyl in the living room right next to the stacked stereo, you know, with all the different pieces. And at that time, in the 90s, hip-hop was emerging, you know, and I loved every bit of it. And I remember even riding around with my pops and playing Good Day. You know, Today Was a Good Day by Ice Cube. I remember D-Nice. Like, it was just a golden time, man. So I, I probably fell in love with hip-hop very, very, very young. And I started testing it out and freestyling in different ciphers. And I noticed when I would rap, like, people was like, keep going. You know, keep going. Like, commentary started happening. Because I was just doing it for the fun of it. Though that was a high place of esteem in a black community, Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily see myself as that, you know, I just, I was in love with it. Yeah. It's so funny. Like I can relate to so much of that. That was also my story of just being enamored and connected and feeling like people are speaking this mm -hmm. language that I resonate with and telling stories that I yeah. can connect with and doing it in a way that feels fresh, unique, that feels like home, Yeah, you know? All right. You mentioned that this transformation happens at 16. You kind of more bold with your yeah. faith. And then you mentioned, you know, going to a D1 school. And D1 is Division oh, yeah. One for those that are not familiar. Division One top tier athletic program. There's Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three. Division One is the cream of the crop of that. You know. What yeah. I mean? So did you start at the junior college? I started JUCO junior college level. Yeah. So like one of the things that's really interesting about the parallel mm -hmm. in this story is you started by talking about your parents goals and that really revolved around mm. college and how both of those goals were essentially short-circuited because of financial reality. So when it came time for you to make that step, what was their sense of expectation on mm. you, you know, f of making that next journey, especially in light of the fact that they had wanted to be in that space, but maybe, mm. you know, couldn't? That's a great question. To that point, you know, they had raised me and it was almost become a joke, like, at 18, you out of here. You know what I mean? You're going to fly high, and you ain't got to worry about it, you know. But when it came close to the time, they were a bit reserved about it, you know, and they were a bit more cautious about it um, and gave me more options. Like, you can stay for a year if you need to, you know. And I was so gung-ho about it's, it's time that I wasn't trying to hear anything about slowing down. But they were very supportive. But also, I think there was some knowledge that lacked around making that happen. And so there was a lot of blind spots in the preparation for it. It was just like, work hard, get the best grades you can. But I remember, like my junior year, I got uh, nominated to go to this avid college prep class. And you only get in this class by somebody else's referral. I didn't even know about it. <laughs> but you would get in this class if your teacher felt that you had college potential 
like for me, I got high test scores and didn't always do my homework, you know. Um, and so somebody saw this potential in me to go to college. And then I got in this college prep class and I learned like, oh, people prep for this their freshman year. Oh, people been studying, you know, and you need to send this to the colleges by your sophomore year and your junior year and you should volunteer. I learned that one year before I'm about to graduate, you know. So some of that information just hadn't been passed down because we didn't know. And so that's sort of why I had to go to a junior college. And I think they were definitely supportive. I didn't see myself joining the Air Force. I had I had resentment towards the Air Force because I felt like my dad did not have control over his life growing up. So I made up in my mind, I'm not going to the Air Force I want more control over my life and my decisions and my time with my family. And plus the dreams that I had, they weren't in the Air Force. You know, the Air Force couldn't answer those, in my opinion. I didn't know any other option, you know, and I I, I felt like I had to spread my wings and college was the only way, you know, whether I had to take a hundred loans out or not. Mm. So was the junior college choice more about basketball or was it about just not knowing about the academic preparation and test scores and all those things needed to get straight into a a traditional four-year school? I would say it's a little bit of both, but it was probably more about basketball. So I just kind of went like, well, let let me do this opportunity because I didn't have that type of high school career that would have my favorite team, North Carolina, knock on my door and sending me tapes. Like that wasn't happening, you know? And so I had to walk on. I got a scholarship, you know, and it was great. Year that I walked on, I fractured my ankle though, you know? And so it was, it was tough, you know? But I stayed on, I was able to stay on a team and keep my scholarship, but it didn't allow me to to project like I, like I wanted to. Okay. And uh, so I ended up having to transfer to a, to a smaller type school, a D3 school. Um, but God was doing something all in the works, you know. Okay. So then you go to a D3 school. How does that work out for you? Yeah, it worked out all right. You know, it, it was it wasn't the best program for me. I thought it was the call of the Lord because the summer before it was time to make a decision. I heard the Lord say Massachusetts. And I'm like, it was a small, still voice. I called up my boy from high school, my best friend, and I say, yo, Carl, I don't know what this means, but I hear God saying Massachusetts. And then the next summer, my roommate, we were good friends. He said, I got an opportunity to go to Massachusetts. You want to come play with me there? Wow. So I just felt like it was providential for me to go there. And it was an opportunity where I get to play a lot, but it wasn't my style of basketball. So it wasn't the best experience for me, you know, but you know, I learned a lot on the campus and just college experiences, a learning experience in general. So I was like, man, this ain't it. Bro. <laughs> but, you know, I was on my faith tip. I, I relied on that word, Massachusetts, that I heard in my spirit and say, hey, make the best of this. When you don't anticipate the fruit coming from a destination the way you expected, mm. it doesn't mean that God is not moving. And it doesn't mean that it's not part of the plan. You know what mm. I mean? I vision myself going there doing Chris Paul numbers. I didn't end up with Chris Paul numbers, <laughs> but I ended up there with stronger faith, with friends, and God spoke and used different families, and there was a miraculous work going 
there that became bigger than basketball. Got it. So take me to the next journey from basketball not happening like you thought, but you're still there. So what happens next? Yeah. Well, at that point, I had to make decisions. You know, mm-hmm. stubborn me, I still didn't give up my hope dreams. So I just finished the term. You know, I played my two years there. Okay. We got our degree. And because basketball wasn't going the, the best way, I still was trying to make the best and be faithful with the call. Got it. Okay. And what was your degree in? Business. I majored in business, but really my heart was social work. Like my heart was helping the community. They kept telling me, if you go into nonprofit, you're not going to make no money. So I used to say, okay, so I'm going to do business and then I'm a minor in social and, and combine the two, you know, in my naive child like mine. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So was there a moment where you just kind of decide, you know what, I'm just going to try to take care of myself and, and just be, you know, gainfully employed without, you know, pursuing the full-time basketball piece? Yeah, it became very difficult because I was sleeping on my grandmother's couch in Wine Dance at this time and trying to, you know, I had to train, I had to make money. We were poor and, you know, trying to stay in the apartment and not get evicted. And some decisions had to be made. I didn't have the money to be a part of the best gym or get the best trainer and training while trying to find and make a living and and help with the rent. (laughs) You know, something got to give, you know, and it it took some time for for that hope dream to break. But once I I feel like God had a conversation with me and it goes back to that prayer that I had, can you take me to the NBA? Will you be glorified through the sport? And God told me, I've used you in this sport. I've allowed you to meet many people and witness and see things through the sport and teach and do youth ministry, do youth basketball nights, you know, do a youth ministry when I was in high school and college. And God brought all those things to my remembrance of how he was getting glory out of the sport. But I was just so focused on the NBA that I didn't even realize how much God was using me you know and I think there's a message in that right looking at somebody else's journey and not even seeing well what God is actually doing in your journey and so once God made that clear that it wasn't on my grounds it was on his grounds I could let it go you know I can let it go and focus on what he had for my life When we come back, Reflect will share how he began mentoring teens and how a shocking tragedy they experienced compelled him to speak up about injustice in his community. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Hey, y'all. Before we get back to our conversation with Reflect, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Dr. Justo Gonzalez. This is where you're from. A group of uh, revolutionaries attacked a military place just below the hill from the seminary. And we couldn't see from up there. And we, we were 
peeking over the, the walls and, and, and seeing people uh, running and shooting and all that. And next morning, there were all these pictures of all these people who had been killed. And you could still hear uh, the hunting of people who were now fugitives all over the city. So obviously, that, that does something to you. Now, let's get back into our conversation with Reflect on where you're from. Mm. And so when you do let go, what do you end up moving into? Well, I started getting deeper into my music. I started getting deeper into nonprofit. I really had a heart for being with our youth and our communities. I mean, at the time, actually, I was driving to work. I, I had a job at a bank and... Hot 97, Allen Houston had a radio ad and it was about building your own business. And it was an incubator. And I, I called, I applied, and I actually, they accepted me in the program. And that was the first time Allen Houston and his team, and I met Kenny Turner, who became my mentor, where they said, what's your vision? And then I had this vision of a community center and they said, okay, so work it out planted and they gave us, you know, people to consult us and, you know, the person with the best plan would go through an incubator and then they would get uh, a certain amount of money to help start their business. And I didn't win, but I was like runner up and they gave me the award for the best nonprofit vision for my community center. And so this opened the world to me in another way, because now I wasn't thinking that I need millions of dollars from the NBA to, you know, start something. They empowered me like, no, you can start it from the ground up. And they gave me the space to dream. And because I'm I'm thinking about my cousins, you know, that keep moving from place to place. I'm thinking about my grandmother living in public housing. I'm thinking about my, you know, family still stuck in bills and things like that. And so my heart really bled for people that was in the situation of my family, our communities, you know what I mean? And bringing resources. And so I became more committed to that and I became more committed to music and infusing the two. So at some point, some of this turns into education. How did you get there and what was that Department of Education experience? Yeah. So after the banking position, after the seed was planted in me with building that vision for a community center, a nonprofit, God had blessed me with the opportunity to work at the Y. Now, I had no career development experience, <laughs> um, but I had this friend that showed me how to do a resume so well, showed me how to do interviews so well, I could just regurgitate that and I used to help all my friends. And that's the experience that I took you know, to the job and just the love for black and brown students. And, you know, I, I saw them as my brothers, as my sisters and my cousins. And so I took that into that place. It was going well. People started talking about me, you know, leading. And then I just started dabbling into learning more about the Department of Education because I, because my program was really an indictment on the Department of Education. Because my program were young black and brown students, 16 to 24 year olds that I had dropped out of high school. And so I would hear stories from them about how teachers had told them, I'll see you in summer school or you're not going to make it in this world. And they never knew that student was starving that morning because 
they didn't have breakfast or they never knew that that person had been molested and raped and they see stripping as a source of revenue and don't necessarily see any value to their body because they've been molested. So there's a cognitive dissonance. Like they never knew these stories, right? It was just like, did you, were you able to sit down at a desk and do this task? And so I saw this disconnect between actually empowering and caring for people. And my students were the people bleeding with the wounds and the band-aids of an overcrowded school system that wasn't able to meet them where they were. Mm. And and so I just, I said, I, I can't be a part of the problem. And so that's when I left to Massachusetts for a couple months. I didn't even know what I was going to do. My friend said I could stay in his basement. So I stayed in his basement. I worked some jobs helping with the disability part-time. And I just wrote, I just wrote, my journal was flooded and just prayed of what to do. Because all the systems started seeming really big and overwhelming. Right. And just to interject for a yeah. second, just to make sure I'm tracking. So essentially, yeah. you're in this role at the Y as a career developer. And I think what you're experiencing is as you are working with these students who you start to hear how they're there because the traditional mainstream system that is set up to educate them failed to just simply see them as people that had a lot that was going on in their lives based on poverty, based on abuse. And Mm -hmm. so we're discarded because of that. And so in a lot of ways, you're picking up the pieces, but it feels like it's a Band-Aid on like a cancer. And it just got to a place where you're like, I can't do this anymore because this isn't really making a difference. Exactly. That's 100% true. And I, I felt lied to. I felt like because growing up, it's like education is the way. Mm. Education is the way. And especially as a as a black person, you know, like college is the way. I'm not two degrees away from my uncle that can lend me a couple of thousand dollars. Mm. You know what I mean? And everybody is working hard and trying to make it, trying to survive. And I saw that what I was told and what I was taught or indoctrinated that education is the golden path, here it fell short. Got it. <laughs> you know, it fell short for these for these bright and I and I mean bright students, passionate students, made in this image, very gifted students. And I'm like, why didn't they make it? <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? So something is wrong. And I'm not helping, you know what I mean? I'm not helping. And so I didn't know what I was going to do, but I needed to do something different. Now, you've mentioned in your music, especially in Tell Pharaoh, a song that you did for the Juneteenth soundtrack, uh, which folks should definitely listen to it. But you reference a student that also experienced the failings of the system Mm -hmm. that seemed to have an impact on you. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, that was actually the same program, but... What's funny, I went there and I came back to New York and now I felt like I had eyes to see, you know. And so they brought me back as the assistant director and I eventually became the director um, not too long after that. And it was tough, man, but I, I love those kids so much. I love what we were doing so much that I, I look beyond all of my inexperience and inadequacies and kept it moving. So we started that program, I hired my own staff, and now I'm full blown in my first 
like community leadership position at 28 years old, mm-hmm. trying to figure this out, aware of the system, but feeling like because I'm in this position, maybe I can do a little bit more. And not too long after that, when we recruited our second group of students, the program was called Youth Build, but it was connected to the YMCA. So I had to partner with the Y. And so I'm at this meeting and I come out of this meeting, Russell, and there's like 20 missed calls. And you know, when you see 20 missed calls, what happened? And before I could process what happened, my students come running out. They beat Robert. They beat Robert. So I run outside. I come out to Northern Boulevard. And it's looking <laughs> like a scene from Die Hard. All these cops sprawled across Northern Boulevard. And I'm looking for my student, Robert. And they're like, he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. And I'm looking for my student. And I eventually see him in a tinted cop car. His face kind of like sawed off you know, like red, like fresh red from being sawed on the sidewalk, like being his face being rubbed on the sidewalk hard. And he's bleeding and he's incoherent. And the minute, you know, I'm like this, like it's just, it's like a whirlwind and it moves slow. And then a police officer comes and pushes me. And I'm like, this is my student. What's going on, what's happening? And it's just an intense moment at that time. You know, I'm, 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 I'm definitely bringing it down a little bit, but it's intense. And then the chief came and broke us up and pulled me to the side and talked to me. And, and I'm like, what's going on? What's happening? And the next day, a video came out of it. And you see four, five, six, seven, eight cops beating on this kid, you know, who's on the ground. <laughs> Tasers, batons. And you're hearing him yell, help, stop. And so it came out. It got thousands of views, local story. The news ended up coming in front of the YMCA. Now the Y wants to get involved. And they come and tell me, (laughs) you know, it's not advocate for the student. It's damage control, right? I remember the vice president coming down from the main office from Manhattan, coming to talk to me and the executive director, telling me, hey, we want to keep this down. And he told me, I'm your employer and kind of like subtly threaten my job if I speak out, Mm -hmm. you know, let let communications handle this. And communications would call my office every day. Did you say something? Meanwhile, my my whole student body is traumatized. My staff is traumatized. And I remember telling him, I said, well, you're my employer, but above you is God. (laughs) And that's who I am responsible to at the end of the day. And so... My executive director was William Nelson, and he said, you know, you don't always have to fight outwardly. You can fight behind the scenes, and that was his thing. And so he took me to elected officials' offices. He's like, let's fight this way, (laughs) you know? And at the same time, I'm thinking like, well, I want to do all that needs to be done, but I also don't need to get fired while my students are scared Mm. straight, while my staff is scared straight. And so as a black man, I experienced discrimination my whole life. But for the first time, I was in this community leadership position where I saw kind of like behind the curtains of how systemic injustice works, right? Because the Y was worried about their relationships with the NYPD, 
And so instead of the wise saying, let's advocate for this young man, let's defend this young man because he is innocent. They chose to try to do damage control and sweep it underneath the rug. Hmm. And I asked the question, what would be different if this young man might have been white, might have been a woman? And I seen another incident in, uh, I think it was Seattle or California, where a young student got beat by the cops on campus. And the executive director said, we will not tolerate this. Hmm. The police force ended up submitting an apology. You know that? Hmm. Like, so- you know how important leadership is? You know how important relationships are? And so I was trying to do good works, but I saw even trying to do good works is not enough if you don't oppose the injustice, like speak out. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, we feel like, okay, it's just good enough to do good works and love people, love your neighbor. But, you know, in the Bible, we see firsthand prophets that speak out against kings. John speaking out against Herod. Jesus flipping over the tables. Like, I learned in that moment that you cannot just be a good Christian, love your neighbor without seeking justice at times. And so it was eye opening for me and it lit my fire in another level because I saw this is a fight and I and I really didn't have the categories to do justice at that time because that wasn't really taught. You know, what, what I was taught was to be angry and sin not, mm. you know, be still and know that he is God. You know, and these things are true, but the rich theology around justice of seek justice, defend the oppressed was not like embedded, you know, and I feel like that's why I said in the album, some of King's tools have been lost, you know, because these things are not preached. And there's this sense that the past is so ancient and these problems are long ago and it's not as intense, but people are still dying, mm. you know, and there still needs to be a voice in the wilderness <laughs> that speaks up and says, no, you know, this is not okay. What are you going to do? You know, in the rich theology around Paul advocating for himself as a citizen saying, is it legal for you to beat me and flog me as a Roman citizen? Mm. Challenging the authorities and saying, you beat me publicly and you must apologize publicly. And so like in American Christianity, we've become timid and feel like our Christianity is about this being nice or the of no tension or no conflict that this is what peace is. Right. And you know, we just don't see that in the Bible. <laughs> mm. You know, we see conflict, we see tension, and we have to be okay with that. And so that was the education for me, you know, and what it takes to do justice. I didn't realize you were in the heat of that moment as a leader and the type of relationship that you have with him as a student. I'm curious, um, real quick, right? Because both of your parents were in the military. You obviously were raised with a lot of discipline and, you know, just a regard for authority. But when you talk to them, I imagine you talk to them about the situation or even about your sense of appealing for justice. You know, how did they respond? Because oftentimes people can think that or can hear uh, criticism of law enforcement as, in one instance, as criticism about mm -hmm. the various institutions of law enforcement as a whole? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. You know, honestly, I just remember them trying to support me, mm. you know, in terms of emotionally. Mm. 
you know, I think their goal was just to be a support for me. And they were grieved and disturbed that that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I my family was always, like my mama tell you, she protested, <laughs> you know, in a school protest. My family was always well aware, mm-hmm. though we were conservative in some ways, as the traditional black church is, you know, my family were always aware of racial injustice in the fight. But you see how that like that nuance of both being true and you holding that tension together of on the one hand being in an environment where literally your parents were in an aspect of you know, the military and, mm-hmm. and what that means. Yet at the same time, even them and then you being like, hey, there's certain things that sometimes these institutions who have authority do that need to be challenged. And and yeah. even my faith is calling me to speak to that. And sometimes it's hard, like you mentioned this in New History, which we, you know, about to transition yeah. into, like that sometimes people think it's an either or as, a, as opposed yeah. to a both and. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that there were things that weren't really on the radar and you were new to this aspect of seeing some of the implications of justice in the scripture. But by the time you put out new history, one of the things I'm aware of in it is that there are two different interludes mm-hmm. um, called I Am Justice, where you quote scripture after scripture after scripture from, yeah. you know, Luke four eighteen to, you know, Deuteronomy or to Micah 6, 8. I mean, it's just a deluge of, of texts. Clearly something changed from the time that you had that one incident where you weren't able to see those connections to now where, you know, it's pretty much laced throughout this project. How did you get there and why did you decide to put those interludes in there? Yeah, actually, this is the incident that catapulted me to learn more in scripture about what God says to do mm-hmm. because I, the categories were lacking. So it, it put me on a hunt to discover. And when I, when I hunted for justice, I saw how it's not just a good thing in the Bible, but it's like a central priority starting from Genesis going to Revelation, you know? And so I just felt like the church is not talking about this in the right way because unfortunately the way justice was portrayed is vengeance and punitive, you know, just payback in a sense. And, and I always felt bad and, you know, when when we talk about racial relations and racial justice, I, I I felt like Christians were just telling me to forgive and don't be angry and move on and God is going to come back and fix everything when he comes back. And it just, it felt like a little shallow, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and and it wasn't speaking to my situation with my student and in my community. And so... Once I started discover, I fell more in love with God and I saw how present he was and I saw the blind spots that Western theology had around justice and the things that they just weren't mentioning, you know, uh, things like the parable with Jesus talked about the widow praying for justice. <laughs> and people usually use that scripture as just an occasion to pray and never give up. And never talk about justice when justice is mentioned like four times. It's actually mentioned more than prayer in that parable. And so I just saw this rich theology around justice and all of the prophets and 
what was going on and what made God so mad. Because if you don't deal with this justice thing, you don't see God as the defender in the Old Testament. You see God as this bully, this judgmental God. But really, when you see justice in this clear context, you see God when he's making judgment, he's actually defending the people. He's getting angry because of injustice, because of unfairness, because of brutality, because child sacrifice, all the things that were happening. When when we see God telling Moses, I hear the cries and the tears of my people, that theme is kind of threaded throughout the Old Testament. Anytime there's a high movement of judgment. And so I just felt like I seen God in a new light, <laughs> you know, and I saw a God that was there for our people and it made sense and it connected the dots for me. And I even dug deeper for my church because around that time they had wanted me to become the director of justice. And so I just really started doing my homework to show and present people who just feel when you talk about justice or you talk about racial relations that this is something that has to deal with CRT and the woke church and liberal. And, you know, they start saying we're getting away from the gospel. I needed to show people, no, this is in the Bible and this has been trending for a long time. And God says himself, I am a God of justice. He says, I love justice. And it really, to be honest, it saved me in my faith. Mm -hmm. So many brothers and sisters have walked away from the faith because they did not see a God that was touched by their infirmities. They did not see a God of justice. They thought the Christian God was a white God and could care less and was disconnected. Man, so inspiring to hear that story. I think about one of the things that in, in your album, New History, that it comes across very clearly is that same element of teaching, right? Of you being a teacher, mm -hmm. of you wanting to just communicate complex ideas and make them simple uh, really comes through. Especially, I, I think you probably have a record of being the first hip hop song with the Hebrew term mishpat, like as the <laughs> title of the song. Yeah. I, I'm just going to take yeah. a guess to say that that might be the first. Um, in the second verse of that song, you say, I recommend you take off that white lens. Luke 4.18 is where his mission begins. A time bomb erupted right in front of the public. The word reading himself through Isaiah fulfilling justice. But y'all never got adjusted. Mm. You. This mm -hmm. is one of multiple times in the album where you refer to 418. Uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Mm. Tell me about Luke 418 and its significance, you think, to us today. It's so significant because oftentimes I hear in circles, well, the Old Testament, it's about justice, but the New Testament is about love. And I think that is off. <laughs> and that is a misunderstanding of justice, to nicely say, and, and God's heart for justice. Because when they say, well, the Old Testament talks about justice, but New Testament doesn't really. Well, Luke 4.18 shows you what Jesus declares his mission is, right? In Luke 4.18, he's quoting Isaiah 61 in 1. And Isaiah actually is where justice is mentioned the most in the Bible, <laughs> you know? And when Jesus clarifies his mission and what he is here to do, he is referencing a heavy justice scripture in Isaiah 61. And so he is not separated and said, Justice was in the old 
This is love. I'm in the new. That is not anywhere in his language. He is saying, this is my mission. I have not forgotten <laughs> the people. I have not forgotten the brokenhearted, the blind. I have not forgotten, you know, the poor. And then he goes and lives this out. And this is why nations and people and languages are dropping everything that they're doing in their everyday lives to see what this man is about because he's not just teaching, but he's bringing justice and he's upsetting the authority because he is about the people. And so he's showing this great love for people and he's exacting justice, which is not punitive, which is restorative in a whole way. So when I talk about Mishpat, we're talking about a restorative justice. And so I brought that out because here is Jesus himself, the son of God, right in front of the public and he's announcing his mission and justice is central to his mission. Mm. And, and so I used the, the word play to help people get a sense that no, justice is not forgotten. Justice is not just the Old Testament thing. No, justice is central to the New Testament as well because it's who God is, <laughs> you know? And so that is a huge key moment for people that you just can't brush under, you know? This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gusman, and was engineered by Kevin Burgess. Also want to thank Bobby and Mike for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.